Jesus, thank you that we get to share our money because you were generous with us. And we thank you that we could never do anything to be more important to you or more impressive because you've already said we are important and you've made us impressive. So we pray for the children as they spend more time learning from your word this morning that your love and generosity toward them would be something that they know deep, deep in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me dismiss us this morning. I'm first going to invite up John and Michael. Um, These amazing guys are um, inductive Bible study leaders on campus, and they have um, answered the call to step in and join us in ministering to the kids here. So this morning, we're doing a funny thing. We're inviting our fourth and fifth graders, but I also want to invite any middle schoolers who would like to join them today. So fourth through eighth graders can go with John and Michael over to do inductive Bible study on Matthew 6. Um, So why don't you guys head over to the door so you don't get trampled by younger people. Um, So fourth and fifth graders and all the way through eighth graders can go with these guys for Bible study. And then um, Miss Grace and her team can come up and four-year-olds through third grade can follow her out to Children's Church. Right, as the children depart, let me pray for them and for us as we open God's word together this morning. Father, we bless you for the gift of children. Um, there's little that's more precious in this world than young lives, and we pray, Lord, for their protection this morning, that you would safeguard them from all the wiles of their enemy, that you would protect them in children's church, and that you would uh, bring them up in the way that they should go, <coughs> knowing your ways and loving you first, Lord. And I pray for us as we open your word. You would send us your Holy Spirit to be our guide. Um, Father, please open our hearts to you in love and faith this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, can it really be October already? (laughs) October is the month that we set aside here at Incarnation to talk about giving and financial stewardship. Um, So as Sarah mentioned, today we're going to take a one-week break from our sermon series in Nehemiah. And we're going to listen to what Jesus has to teach us on the subject of money. And the heart of today's message is, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, then it's time to get serious about your giving. It's time to get serious about your giving. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, so go ahead and find that now, page 811, Matthew chapter 6. Now, I'm aware that we've got a lot of different kinds of people joining us here today, and even more of you are joining us online. Some of you have been with us since the very beginning of this church, um, and some of you are just visiting us today for the first time. And so I know that some of you here are already serious about your giving, many of you actually, um, but please don't tune out just yet. Um, My hope for you this morning is that Jesus' words will encourage you to keep going, give you a sharper focus and renew your vigor for this good work. Some of you have tried a little bit of giving, but you haven't yet gotten serious about it. And I'm really excited that Jesus' words might change that for you today. My earnest hope for you is that he will woo you and entice you to discover the joy and freedom of radical Christian generosity. And then there might still be others of you here 
who are just visiting our church today, maybe for the first time. And some of you might not have made a decision yet whether you're even going to follow Jesus. And if that's you, then you are extremely welcome. Today's message is maybe not the first thing I would want to talk to you about. Uh, A message about love and forgiveness and eternal life would be a much better starting point to our relationship. But nevertheless, I trust that God has you here today for a reason. And so please listen in to our family conversation about money. Watch how we relate to God, what we believe about him, and how we try to follow him. So wherever you find yourself on this subject this morning, let this next 20 minutes be a private conversation between you and Jesus for how he would want you to move forward. And my call for us as a whole community is that now is the time for us to get serious about our giving. And I want to give you three reasons for that out of Matthew chapter 6. First, because we believe in God. Second, because of the world's need. And third, because of our own self-interest. Okay, so we give because we believe in God, because of the world's need, and because of our own self-interest. So first, it's time for us to get serious about our giving because we believe in God. So Jesus said in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, starting verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And again, at the end of verse 4, he says, your giving should be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So the first striking thing that we notice in this section about Jesus is that he really believes in God. He believes that God is really there. And he says that giving is about God first. So yes, it is about other people's need. That's in verse 2. But first and foremost, our giving is about God. It is to God. God is the first recipient of our gift because whatever reason would we give it in secret? And that makes our giving an act of worship before it is an act of charity. We give money to God in worship because of who God is in our lives. First, he is our God. And gods deserve gifts. In all ancient forms of worship, and most modern ones too, You do not approach your God empty-handed. You bring with you a gift, an offering, a sacrifice to acknowledge your God. And the greater the gift you bring, the greater the view of who your God is. Second, God is our king. God the Father has established God the Son as the rightful king of all the earth. He's a righteous king who cares about the poor, and he's a righteous judge who will bring justice. And kings deserve tribute. Anywhere you find a king, you find the wealthy and great of his country coming to bring him expensive gifts. And those gifts promise allegiance. Those gifts magnify the king's own greatness. And those gifts enable the king to get his work done. And then thirdly, God is our father. This is the word that Jesus uses of him in verse 1. And again in verse 4, your Father who is in heaven. And this one works a little bit differently because children don't usually bring gifts to their parents. It's usually the other way around. And so it is with God, our Heavenly Father. Has He not given us all good things? So we return to Him a small portion of that generosity He has shown to us to acknowledge that all things come from Him and of His own have we given Him. 
That gift of money back to God is a statement of trust that he, as our good father, will take care of all our needs. So as we think about these three roles God has taken in our lives, as our God, as our king, and as our father, then our financial gifts to him are a statement of faith. They say, my God is real because I'm worshiping him with my real money. This isn't a game. I'm playing with Monopoly money. This is for real. Because think about it, if God is not real, then all our gifts are nonsense. This whole church thing is just one big giant Ponzi scheme. It's all a big trick. It's a social club that funds itself by making false promises to ease consciences and then generates a community around a shared lie. If that's what you think church is, then please don't join one. And don't give to one. But if a church is really a community that gathers to worship a real God, then the way we do that with our wallets should reflect the reality that we believe in our hearts. So let me ask you a pointed question for you to ponder in your own heart. Imagine that on the day of judgment, God called up to the stand in your defense your own wallet to testify about your faith. What did you really believe and value in this world. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So what if God asked our treasure? So tell me, where was his heart really? Which master was he really serving? Are you confident of what your treasure would say? That's the first reason for us to get serious about our giving. Because it's a statement about our faith. And it's a very loud one. Our gift to our God is both our tribute and our trust. And it speaks volumes to what we truly believe about who he is. Now, second, we give because of the world's need. We give to God first in worship, but also with the understanding that what our God is going to do with all those tributes is instantly turn around and bless the world's poor. So Jesus says in Matthew 6 that we give in secret because it is worship to God our Father. But then he also says right away in verse 2, when you give to the needy. Notice he says when you give. There's an expectation that all his followers will give to the needy. And also that giving to God and giving to the needy, they're pretty much synonymous. Because if God has some spare cash, he doesn't go and buy a new crown. He doesn't add a layer of gold leaf to his throne. He doesn't throw a big drunken party. What does God do? He brings good news to the poor. He binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty to the captives. He opens the prison to those who are bound, and he comforts those who mourn. So the tribute to King Jesus opens schools and hospitals. It creates cures for diseases. It digs wells for clean water. It subsidizes crops, and it starts new small businesses. That's what Jesus wants to do. And you could say, on the one hand, that he could do all of that without our money, because he's God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But it seems in both Scripture and our experience of the world today that Jesus has bound himself to working through the generosity and labor of his church. Our giving is the plan for the world's poor. And that's obvious when we read through the New Testament and the way that Paul addresses the church in 2 Corinthians that Enyaniah read for us this morning. Because the situation was that the church in Jerusalem needed aid, and Paul's response was, then the other churches must give. 
God's answer is the generosity of his people. There is no plan B. So now maybe we can be forgiven for finding that a pretty hopeless plan. The needs of the world are so vast, so innumerable. The workers are few, the resources are scarce. Can this really be the plan, Jesus? Can we be your plan? Well, I want us to pause for a minute and do the math on this. How much does Jesus ask his church to give? What is the right level of his tribute? Throughout church history, the unified answer has been at least 10% of our income. That number started in the Mosaic Law. So we think about their nation in the early days. It was built as a sort of theocracy where God himself was their king. And when he apportioned the land, 11 of the tribes of Israel owned land, and they made income from that land. And one of the tribes, the tribe of Levi, had no inheritance in the land at all. They survived on the gifts from the other, ten, other 11 tribes, a gift of 10%, which in that case was called a tithe. So it meant that one in ten apples which were grown on your tree were given to the Levites. One in ten lambs born to your flock were given to the Levites, and so on and so on. And the Levites acted kind of like their government. They not only provided for all of Israel's worship, they also judged its crimes and issued punishments. So the tithe was a little bit like a tax. Now, we don't, obviously don't have a temple system today. We have no Levites who are serving us who don't have a share in the promised land. But we still have to reckon with this 10% gift to God as a standard. Because if that's what they gave, when all they had was the Red Sea miracle and Sinai and the law of Moses, when all they had was a copy and a shadow of what was to come, then can we who know Jesus give less? Although the New Testament has no numbers or laws about it or fixed standards, this logic has prevailed throughout church history. We have witnessed the cross of Jesus. We have received the Holy Spirit to dwell within our own bodies. Does that mean less to us than the law of Moses meant to them? Our tribute to our good king should be at least what theirs was. That is the starting point, and we have so much reason to be much more generous than that. So, friends, if that is the standard, how does that look in the church today? Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary publishes annual data on this. Their report from last year says that there are now about 2.5 billion Christians living in the world. About 32% of the global population name Jesus as their God and King. And those 2.5 billion Christians have a total annual income of about $49 trillion dollars. They give away $809 billion to all Christian causes, both churches and charities. So as a percentage of their income, that equates to 1.7%. America as a nation actually does slightly better than the global average. American Christians give a whopping 2.5%. Now, $809 billion given annually does a whole lot of good. No doubt. It builds a lot of homes. It digs a lot of wells. It sponsors a lot of children. It translates a lot of Bibles, and it sends a lot of missionaries out with good news. The church is not completely idle, and it's making progress against poverty globally with some help from local governments. But, friends, can we imagine 
What would happen if starting this day, every Christian in the world who names the name of Jesus started giving away the minimum standard of 10% of their income to the work of the gospel? Can we imagine it? Would that make a small difference or a big difference in our world? According to the Gordon Conwell data, that would boost the work of Jesus in the world by an extra $4.1 trillion per year. $4.1 trillion, which is a number so large we can't really understand it. So let me show that to you on the screens. The greatest force in the human world is military power. And the greatest military in the world is the U.S. military, surely. We spend $732 billion a year on our military, which is this much on the screen. We're going to add the whole rest of the world to this screen now. Well, how do you think that's going to look? I was surprised when I discovered this. The next 10 largest militaries in the world put together spend less than the U.S. That second box here is the sum total of military spending in China, India, Russia, Saudi Arabia, France, Germany, the UK, Japan, South Korea, and Brazil. $726 billion a year. And then here is the whole rest of the world. Another $460 billion. So that top bar that you see on the screen now represents the annual cost of every gun and tank and plane and bomb and aircraft carrier, military satellite and soldier in the whole world. Now, here's the money that is not given to Jesus every year. Remember, that is not the potential total giving. That bar is the extra giving additional to what's already been given. Once you've paid for all your buildings and clergy and everything you're already doing, if all the Christians in the world kept the minimum standard, $4.1 trillion a year. Let me ask you to judge for yourself. Is there anything that King Jesus could not do in our world if he had these resources? When you look at this, do you want every Christian on earth giving 10%? Because I sure do. We can't say that Jesus' plan to ease the suffering in the world doesn't work because we haven't tried it. We can't say that our racing car isn't fast when we've never driven it out of second gear. What I see here is a marvelous opportunity to see some real progress in our day. Wouldn't we say that we've just got to get the church giving again? Christians used to be the most generous people on earth. We've got to get back there. In the early days, it was one of the saltiest statements of our faith and witness. So, it starts with us, with this community. You can clear that now, thanks. I would like to see 100% of us on board getting serious about our giving again. And if you find this word convicting, then share it with everyone you know. We have a savior who died for us. We owe him everything. What he has asked for is 10% of our income while he provides everything that we really need. And this plan could realistically end poverty in the world in our lifetime. End deaths from malnutrition, bad water, and preventable disease. End illiteracy and child homelessness. And finally get the Bible translated into every language on earth. Let's do this, church!
Let's get this done. I know that I have allies in this. Many of you here feel as I do. Taylor and Fumi and their families, even though they derive a portion of their income from Christian ministry, still give away much more than 10% to kingdom work, as do Sarah and I, as does our bishop. In fact, the Gordon Comer report says that most people who start giving 10% don't stop there. 10% is just the gateway. It's not the final destination. Their report says that a full three quarters of every Christian that starts giving 10% is actually now giving 15 or 20% of their incomes away. My own father, Chris Hall, by the end of his career, was giving away 50% of his income to the work of the gospel. He is not a rich man, but he will be rich in heaven. So, as if those first two reasons aren't enough by themselves, then we come to the third reason. We give not only in worship of our God, and not only to help the poor, but also out of (laughs) self-interest. So as we read Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, we can't miss the importance of God, and we can't miss the importance of the poor. But neither can we miss the obvious appeal to self-interest. And I probably wouldn't talk about this if Jesus didn't. But he does. He talks about it a whole lot. Verse 1 talks about the reward from heaven. Verse 4 promises that your father who sees in secret will reward you. And in verse 20, Jesus invites his disciples to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Jesus is primarily motivating them, not by his own kingly worth, nor by the ravenous need of the world but with the promise of a personal and eternal reward. So the world sometimes motivates people to be generous and philanthropic by using the line, well, you can't take it with you. (laughs) But that's not at all true, is it? That's an unbiblical and heretical lie. Jesus says the total opposite. You absolutely can take it with you, or at least you can send it on ahead of you. Because he says that money that's transferred out of our earthly bank accounts and given up freely to the kingdom of heaven is then also credited to our heavenly bank account. How crazy is that? We get to make a like-for-like trade, giving up worthless green paper in temporary worldly wealth that will have no value in a thousand years. Trade that in for an equivalent in heavenly credits that will still be paying dividends a million trillion years hence. If you have a financial consultant and you laid this plan out and you scratched your head, you said, should I do this? Is there any financial consultant in the world who wouldn't say yes? It's the no-brainer to end all no-brainers, isn't it? Trade a currency that will soon be worthless for a currency that will soon be priceless. Friends, the only reason we would not rush to do this is that we didn't really believe in heaven at all. Or really believe that we live there forever. Or really believe that Jesus can take good care of our treasure as he promises. So it all comes back around to our faith. Are we really serious about this Jesus thing? Or are we only playing games with it? So Jesus says in verse 21 that where our treasure is, there our hearts will also be. And we can turn that around to to mean that we can leverage ourselves away from the dangerous love of money by giving money away generously and lavishly. 
So what he means is we can transfer the affections of our hearts away from this treacherous world and toward our true heavenly home. Wouldn't that be a great thing to do? Don't we all want to do that more than anything? And Jesus says it can be done easily by just leveraging this tool of money. Just give it away. It's easy. If we hold on to our money, then Jesus says we will serve it as our master. In that case, our money doesn't serve us, but we serve it. And we become enslaved to it. And boy, does that prove true in our world. Find me a rich person who loves money, and I will show you a pitiable slave. Always chasing the next buck, selling their souls to it, selling their families to it, sacrificing their characters to it, and pretty soon losing their very lives to it. Deeply, deeply unsatisfied and unhappy people. Pitiable slaves. But we can choose to serve God instead and give him his due tribute of our 10%. And what that does is flip around the whole equation. Then God becomes the only master and money becomes our slave. And that too is a great trade, isn't it? So much better to be master over 90% of my income than be a slave to all of it. So, We can all apply Jesus' words to our own lives today, very simply and very directly. It's time to get serious about our giving. The time is now. As we continue to slowly emerge from this pandemic, the worst of the crisis is over, we're going back to work again, we're earning again, and now it's time to get serious about our giving again. And getting serious means that I challenge everyone here to start giving at least the minimum standard of 10% right away. If you haven't ever done that before now, then please start today. Go home and check your payment records, find out how much you get in income, get out a calculator, divide it by 10, and start a regular giving commitment this afternoon. I hope I've succeeded in showing you from Jesus' words why that's necessary, why it's life-changing, and why it's urgent. Now, let me offer some caveats and clarifications. First, your normal Christian giving is on your income. That means paid employment. If you live off of savings or loans or gifts from friends or government subsidies, I'm not calling you to give on that. You can if the spirit moves you to, but that's not part of the challenge. And if you're borrowing money to live, don't give that away if it means accruing more debt. It's better that you get yourself financially set up first and then get serious about your giving. So students, you might have to wait a couple of years. But if these guidelines leave you not giving anything at all, then it is better to give the kingdom just a few dollars a month and establish a regular habit of giving than to deprive yourself of any heavenly treasure because good habits stick. Second, I am not calling you to give all of your giving to this church. Some churches ask for that, but we don't. So if you know a missionary personally and want to support them, or you want to sponsor a child through compassion as part of your giving, that's great. Please do. It's about the kingdom, and it all counts just the same. But we do ask that at least half of your giving be directed to your home church. If we are your family of faith, then you need to believe that we're doing God's kingdom work that you're glad to support with your giving. It's important to your relationship with this community. If you don't see us as a church that will make good and wise use of your gift, then it's probably time for you to find another church. 
Your church should be full of people you aspire to be, doing work that you want to see done. Friends, your church should not be your mission field, a place that you're there to change. That's honestly just an insult to your church and to Jesus. Find a church you love that can help you grow, a church that you're glad to give to. So here at Incarnation, we try to demonstrate our trustworthiness with funds by being completely transparent with our church budget every year. And if you stick around today for the announcements, we're going to talk you through it. Thirdly, although you don't have to give your whole gift to this church, it is important that it be wisely directed to the work of God's kingdom. Money is not given away, that is thrown away. Be intentional. So that means give to people and organizations who bear the name of Jesus and promote the cause of his gospel. So supporting NPR or your local symphony orchestra or a political party does not count. That is not worship to Jesus. And you can't count that as part of your Christian giving. Those are fine things for you to give to after Jesus has had the first tent. Similarly, I don't think we should have to choose between charities that help the poor and missions that proclaim the gospel. There are plenty of places that do both, so let's give to those. Seek first the kingdom. So some charities, like St. Jude's Hospital or Habitat for Humanity, were started by Christians on Christian principles, but now the name of Jesus is nowhere to be found in what they do. They're still great works of mercy, but I would discourage the church from supporting any organization that does not actively promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that he is finally the only real hope for the world, and whoever is not actively for him is against him. So when it comes to organizations, I would choose carefully on the basis of who is actively promoting the gospel of Jesus. But of course, when it comes to individuals, friends, family, and neighbors in need, and you respond out of love, that always counts as Christian giving. Fourthly, I think this is the right time for you to get serious about your giving, however much you think isn't the right time, <laughs> however crazy your life is right now. I know, I know, you've got a lot going on. Bills are due, chaos at home, your mother-in-law is coming to visit. It's not a good time for any major life changes right now. It's never going to feel like a good time, but the right time is now. Because actually, this is a change that's going to help you. It's going to help with all those other things. This step of discipleship is actually one of the easiest. It costs very little, and the rewards are quick. So I'm commanding this for you now because I love you and because this will be an easy victory for you. It's going to help with everything else. It's great for the peace of your heart. It's great for your faith, for your freedom, and for your encouragement. So when you think about the tools you could use to step forward in Jesus, prayer, you look at prayer and it seems easy, but it's actually really hard. And evangelism seems hard, and it's actually super hard. But giving, you look at giving and it looks hard, but it's really actually easy. So if giving 10% is the step you haven't taken, then I'm confident that it's your next step, the thing for you to do right now, and it will open the gateway for all kinds of other good things. Okay, I'm so confident about this that my final word is a promise to you. I am so confident of the freedom and joy of serious Christian giving that I will offer you a personal guarantee today that if you are a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you are currently not giving away 10% of your income to Jesus, and if you will start today, 
Not because you really believe me, but because you're just going to do it because I told you to. Then, if by Easter next year, six months from now, you have not proven for yourself that everything Jesus says about money is true, that generous giving is freedom and joy and peace, and you're so glad you started it, then come and complain to me, and I promise I will refund you every penny that you gave this church between now and then. That is my personal guarantee, but you have to start right now. All right, so I'll be glad to talk personally with any of you about any of these things, but for now, let's bow our heads for prayer.